1: actor, Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and great friend of the show, Philippe Sands is back. So, Philippe, welcome, and um, thank you for coming back on.
0: It's incredibly nice to be back on. I have to <laughs> tell you that there are numerous invites um, in relation to a new discussion. I reached out. There wasn't one from you guys, so I said to my mates and friends and people who have worked with me, I want to do this podcast because this has the best audience around and reaches places other podcasts oh, well, yeah, you, you know, do not reach
1: you're saying all the right things of course but we were talking back in the spring weren't we once the uh, once the horrors of the uh ukraine war began and he was saying you know we, we, we it'd be good to talk about um uh, the sort of human rights on, and war crimes on the back of that. And, and, you know, for various reasons, you're a busy fellow. You know, we've been careering around all over the place. We haven't quite sort of got round to it. But, but you know, what, what have you been up to? I mean, since last we spoke, because, um,
0: you know, we all leave busy lives, don't we? Well, it's been, it's a sort of weird time, isn't it? I mean, it very we've got drought weird. and we've got extreme heat. We've got a war going on in, mm. in Europe. We've got political changes taking place in Britain. It feels like a time of incredible upheaval. I, I have to say... And transition. I don't know how it is for you, but I have the feeling that something bigger is coming, that we're yeah. hurtling towards a major, major um, conflagration. I hope that's not just because I'm so immersed in events from the 30s and 40s that I've become overly sensitised, but I feel that something is happening.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid. I've I'm, I feel rather with you and then i go no come on jim you know you're a you're an optimist you know you're you're a you're a half full kind of person so banish such thoughts but but sneaking in the background is the word is is a is a weapon that begins with n that kind of just just is hovering in the background you know we're in an age of hypersonic weapons now and i think that's really really terrifying I, I I don't think China's going to go into Taiwan any time immediately soon, but I think medium term, I think it's inevitable. I, I think for you know Formosa as it was, Taiwan as it is now, you know, in the Second World War there was a reason why the Jap you know, why the Americans didn't invade Formosa. An incredibly difficult place to do. Um, uh, and and it's very you know, it's 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 easier to defend an island than than attack it. Um, but the balance of arms um, all that sort of stuff, you know, do the Taiwanese have the stomach for the fight? Uh, you know, I, all these are kind of, you know, absolutely impossible questions to answer at this stage. Um, but it feels like something like that's going to happen or an even worse um pandemic is around the corner because, you know, everyone used to say, well, you know, you get a pandemic every 100 years, but but palpably, the means of transmitting a, um, a, a pandemic is, is much greater today than it was 100 years ago. So I'm not sure that 100 that year rule probably um, stands anymore. So, yes, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and, and you know, you, you can see, can't you, in Ukraine that it's going to, uh, you know, the difficult winter ahead, you know, things don't go the way the Russians want.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is Putin doesn't give a shit, does he? That's, for me, the real concern. Yeah, that's the real concern for me, too. If the Donbass and other things don't go the way the Russians, Putin and his team, want it to go, um, I think things could really easily spiral out of control. And Mm. I've always taken the view that what's happening in Ukraine is a line in the sand, and it does directly touch us and directly threaten us and as you will probably know i've not been a great supporter of the current and uh present for a little bit of time prime minister but i do think he's been absolutely right in taking very seriously what's happening in um ukraine and i think we have to stand up to putin and i think in part i'm of that view because As you know, I've been so immersed in that very region and I have a sense of the history of that region Mm. and I worry about where this is going to go. I'm actually going to make Mm. my first trip uh, to Ukraine in a few weeks' time. I'm going to the Lviv... International Literary Festival. Mm, Very good. Um, And my wife is not exactly thrilled that I'm going, but I feel it's really important to go. There's a few really decent writers going. There's a lot of Ukrainian writers going, Mm -hmm. and I just think we've got to show solidarity. So I'm going to go in via Krakow, which, of course, was right at the heart of East West Street, and then take the train across the border, which will probably take hours and hours and hours, but I think it's really important to show solidarity. Have you been to Ukraine in the afternoon? No, I haven't.
1: But actually, we're, Al and I have both been invited to go to, to, to Kiev and go and look at Bucha and all the rest of it, um, and the you know the abandoned column north of Kiev, and uh, I don't know. It's a sort of it's a combination of sort of time. Kind of is that a sensible thing to do? Um, you know how complicated is it? You know all those sort of things. But I mean, my instinct is. I kind of I would be interested to go and see it. To be perfectly honest, um, have
0: you been? Have you been to Kiev? I, I, I never have. No. Okay. Um, you you should go. You should go. Yeah. Um It's relatively straightforward. You just go in via Poland. You go in via Krakow. You can go to Lviv, which is an extraordinary city. Of course. And that is a place that you could really do a good show from. And then you just take the train. It's just a few hours, seven, eight hours, and you're in Kiev. And if you go to Kiev the one stop you must go to is the Second World War Museum, Ah. which is an absolutely astonishing place, not least of which this extraordinary towering statue um, of a lady holding a shield. And in that shield is the hammer and sickle because it was built in the Soviet uh, era. It was one of Brezhnev's final acts. And it's very ironic today that, that hammer and sickle remains and the reason it remains is that it is at such a height that they haven't worked out how to take it down. Um, but you're you're there in the presence of a conflict that you and I have spent so much time talking about and are yep. so deeply interested in, which resonates now with particular power. I, I would I mean run, don't walk to go to Kiev. It is an astonishing place. But Lviv is even more astonishing.
1: Mm. Well, the, the, fabulous. OK, well, you, you're stiffening my resolve, I have to say. Anyway, listen, I mean, but not only have you been doing all your your, your, your legal work, your human rights work. You've obviously been ongoing with your investigation on Walter Ralph and, and South America and all that post-war. But you've also um, written a book called The Last Colony, a tale of race, exile and justice from Shagos to The Hague. And this is all about the concept of human rights, isn't it? After the war and, and you know, the end of colonialism and colonial muscle and and this sort of thing. I mean, but how did this come about?
0: So it's a book that tells a number of stories. It tells the story of colonialism and decolonization after 1945. It tells my own engagement with international rules and the story of a rem- rather remarkable woman, Lisby-Élysée, who was forcibly removed from her home on the Chagos Archipelago. I should just say the Chagos Archipelago is a group of 58 islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, which uh, was part of a British colony from 1814 to 1968. So this Before is a Napoleonic 18... War period. Well, it was a Fre- well, it was originally a Portuguese, a French one. then Dutch, and then French until 1814. And then the Treaty of Paris of 1814 yep. transferred... Um, Mauritius, as it became, from France to the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom acquired the Chagos Archipelago.
1: Because France still has interest in the, in you know, like a Reunion and stuff.
0: It does. Uh, in Reunion, in an island called Tromelin, uh, yep. which is also claimed by Mauritius. Anyway, what happened was that in the 1940s, with the United Nations, there was a move to decolonization. Uh, you know, we know the story India, partition, so on and so forth. Yep large parts of Africa Mauritius moved towards independence in the 1960s that coincided with the Vietnam War and the British under Mm. Prime Minister Harold Wilson declined to participate in Vietnam yep but felt under pressure to assist at the time the Americans were developing a new policy of island military bases around the world and they spotted one of the 58 islands of, of Chagos called Diego Garcia. And they said, that would make a perfect airbase for us. Will you lease it to us for 50 years or 70 years? Harold Wilson said yes. Uh, and uh, did so under, in the context of Vietnam. And faced a problem because there was a population of about 2,000 people, Chagossians, black people. They they were the descendants of enslaved people um, and they had lived there for generations. And they lived on about a dozen of the islands. And the problem that Harold Wilson faced was in the context of wanting to give the Americans a base. The Mauritians were seeking independence and Wilson knew that if the whole of Mauritius got independence, including Chagos, the Mauritians would not necessarily give a base to the Americans. So he concocted a plan, which was to separate the Chagos archipelago from Mauritius in 1965, before Mauritius got independence, and keep it as, and create a new British colony. And that's what they did. In 1965, by ordering...
1: Counsel, so, uh, absolutely the time where we're stripping out the empire, getting rid of the whole lot. Uh, uh, in one extreme case, we're adding
0: to it. Exactly. At the very moment you're supposed to be ending your colonies, Britain creates a new colony. It's its last colony in Africa.
2: Hence, and this is this is, title, is pure
0: realpolitik. It's realpolitik. It's Cold War bonkers. Realpolitik. And they do the very thing they're not supposed to do. And the problem they've got is you've got is, 2,000 Chagossians. And the rules of international law have changed. This is what I describe in the book. And the change has occurred because, in part of Nuremberg. Nuremberg. Gonna. So, so to, to, to explain this. So you can this, this a lot Okay. One of the horrors of Nuremberg or, or, or the Second World War was what was called Lebensraum. Living yeah, room for Germans,
1: and this this is this, and this is why they're going into the East because that's where they're going to get it because they haven't oh, exactly. got they haven't got access to the world's oceans they don't have a large merchant fleet they can't get anywhere else where do you get that space to spread out where do you get your breadbasket of
0: Europe right. um, etc. Et Ukraine yep. 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 parts yep. of the Soviet Union parts of Belarus and you strip out the population and you replace them with Germans or ethnic Germans so. The British led the charge at Nuremberg to say the forcible removal of a population and the replacement by another population was a crime against humanity. You can't do it, and nine of the defendants. And, and of nor should you be able to do it. No, no obviously you can't. You know, removing people from their homes is not is not to do. not a good thing to do at all. So they. Proposed that this was a crime against humanity. I mean I described actually a little bit. I didn't know I was going to deal with this when I was writing East West Street, but it was louder pact on on yep. the forcible removal as a crime against humanity. The British argue it, Hartley Shawcross, David Maxwell Five.
1: Yep. And all, this, they all agree that this is this is an abomination, that should not be allowed to happen in the future. And they
0: secure convictions of nine, I think it is, of the Nuremberg defendants, of forcible deportation as a crime against humanity. And six, I think, of them lose their lives in part. They're hanged because of this. So in 1945, forcible removal becomes a big no-no in international law. And it's incorporated into various treaties and various instruments. Fast forward 20 years, and the British have a problem. They've got 2,000 of these Chagossians. They're known as Ilois at the time. And they stand in the way of... um, giving one island to the Americans, Diego Garcia, because they live on Diego Garcia and Peros Baños and about a dozen other islands. So the British decide they're going to remove them. This is prohibited by international law because the rules of international time adopted in the context of the UN are, when a territory is going to be decolonized and get its independence, You cannot separate out a part of the colony. You can't dismember a part of the colony unless the population concerned has given its consent. This is an important point. So, in theory, the British should have asked the population of all of Mauritius and certainly the population of Chagos, are you willing to remain a British colony? That question was never put to the Mauritians or to the Chagossians. Instead, the British, Lord Carradine at the UN, the ambassador, created the fiction that there was no permanent population on Chagos. And therefore, there was no population to consult.
1: I mean, this and is skullduggery
0: they, of the highest order, isn't anyways, it? No, it? it's just appalling. And they characterise all the 2,000 people living there as contract labourers, not permanent residents. Now, some of the contract labourers are, and I've met them now, 50 years later, they're three months old, five months old. They're workers. And they tell the UN there there is no permanent population, and therefore there is no need for a consultation. And why do they have to be removed anyway? Because the Americans want to turn it into a top-secret air base. They, the Americans only wanted removal remove of the population from one of the 58 islands, Diego Garcia. But the British but concluded that... They couldn't do that. They would have to consult with the people who lived on the other islands. So best to remove everyone from the entirety of the country. So that's what the British do. They give Diego Garcia to the Americans in 73. Well, if you go chronologically, 65, they dismember Chagos from Mauritius. 68, they give Mauritius independence without Chagos. And 68 to 73, they gradually remove the entire population. And that's what my book, The Last Colony, describes the circumstances in which all of this happens. Skullduggery at the highest order, double standards, total hypocrisy in the Cold War context. Mauritius, and, 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 they, and they get away with it because this is helping the Americans. They get away with it. They get away with it initially. Right. Okay, They get away with it initially. Um, but Mauritius which is a very poor country in 1968, and one that is economically and militarily totally dependent on Britain for trade in sugar, which is its its main product, doesn't start to raise issues about the dismemberment of part of its territory until 1982, 15 years after independence. And in 1982, Mauritius suddenly says, we want our territory whole again, give us back Chagos. And the British say bugger off, you can't have it. We've given a 50-year lease to the Americans. You're not getting Diego Garcia back. You're not getting it back. And that was how things remained until 2010. Mauritians making the claim, the British saying no, supported by the Americans. In April 2010, ironically, in the very same month that I received the invitation that led me to Lviv and the writing of East West Street, I get a phone call from the Prime Minister of Mauritius, who says to me, Philippe, um, I've read your book on the Iraq war. I'm looking to hire a British barrister who's independent, who's not scared to take on the British government. Would you act for Mauritius to uh, recover our territory, make our territory whole again? And I said I would, and I helped create a team. You know, as barristers, we're independent. We, And it's one of the great things about Britain is no one attacks you, no one challenges you, no one says it's unpatriotic to be an independent barrister. It's it's a very rare thing to have a country like that. I'm very proud of that. And for 12 years, I've been acting for Mauritius, seeking to recover the Chagos archipelago. And um, we've been basically completely successful. We um, devised a legal strategy where we went first to a tribunal under the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, which determined that the United Kingdom's efforts to create an environmental marine protected area around Chagos was illegal. And with that initial decision, we then went to the International Court of Justice. Actually, what happened, it is a sort of David and Goliath story, we had to get to the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And the only way to get to the International Court of Justice in The Hague was to go to the United Nations General Assembly and get the United Nations General Assembly to pass a resolution requesting the World Court in The Hague to deal with the question of decolonization of Mauritius. That was a pretty tough call. Imagine Mauritius yeah. versus the United Kingdom and the United States. Yeah, And we didn't think we would necessarily get a majority but we were i have to say hugely assisted uh, and I, i'm not making this as a as a political point i'm just describing what happened by the vote in june 2016 to leave the european union <laughs> because the consequence of that the unintended consequence of that was all of a sudden at the un 27 allies <laughs> of the united kingdom
1: suddenly no longer allies
0: are no longer allies And they're saying, "Oh, we don't have we don't have an obligation anymore to uh, big up the UK position." Bring it on! So amazingly, in twenty seventeen, Mauritius won a vote at the UN by an astonishing great majority. Um, You know, sort of, I think ninety four votes to send the question to the International Court of Justice. 16 votes against, and the rest abstained, and the case went off to the International Court of Justice. Does Chagos belong to Mauritius or the United Kingdom? Do the Chagossians have the right to go back? We heard the case in 2018, and the decision of the International Court of Justice came down in February uh, 2019, and the court ruled unanimous, no judge, not a single one of the 14 judges voted for the United Kingdom, that Chagos belongs to Mauritius. The whole thing is completely illegal. And And what about Diego Garcia? Everything. Everything belongs to Mauritius. To Mauritius. And the British now have a real problem. Now, the British, uh, the then government of Theresa May, said, no, we're just going to ignore this. We're going to just soldier on and treat Mauritius as ours. We have no doubt about our sovereignty. And this position has become increasingly untenable. Um, and it now has segued into the issue of Ukraine. And let me explain. What, life is very yeah,
1: complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I can... I, I'm, I can my, my, okay. the,
1: the cogs are whirling and I can right, sort of so see that Right, the cogs are link.
0: whirling. So yeah. Chagos and Mauritius are part of Africa. So I went to a dinner uh, a few weeks ago in The Hague uh, you know, by a Scandinavian ambassador, actually, actually the, the, the Belgian ambassador, invited me to a dinner, and there were 10 ambassadors there. for a U- They were attending for a UN conference on Ukraine and creating a coalition to act solidly. The South African ambassador at that dinner said, look, this is all very complicated. We, we have our friends, the British, come to us and say... Join us in resisting the Russian invasion and occupation, illegal occupation, manifestly illegal occupation of Ukraine. Please help us.
1: But we've got Diego Garcia. Right, and the the South
0: Africans just say, look, um, you are illegally occupying a part of Africa. How can you come to us and ask us to support you on Russia and Ukraine when you're treating us in a directly opposite way. And so the upshot of all of that is not a single African country is supporting the West on Ukraine. There's not a single African country doing sanctions. The simple point that I'm making of all of these stories is everything is interconnected. What began in Nuremberg, if you like, with forcible deportations, led to new rules on independence and decolonization led to protection of fundamental rights, which Britain has been a world leader on, has now come back to haunt in the context of Ukraine, which is the very place the facts that were before the Nuremberg trial were on. All of these things are interconnected and they have unintended consequences.
1: We're going to pause right there, have a very, very quick break. Join us again in a minute when I'll be back with Philippe Sands.
2: I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katie Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to the Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger.
0: Go on, tell us, were those donations you made like Obama in 2008,
1: Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Philip Sands, and we're talking. The, I mean, it's the most astonishing story, isn't it? And I'm I'm cringing about this, Philip. I mean, I mean, it's really really embarrassing. I mean, what what was the whole point of the Second World War? You know, the point of the Second World War was to rid the world of Nazism, of, of anti-Semitism, of, of of the horrors of of uh, of Nazi rule and Axis ambition and out of that comes the you know the, the nuremberg laws and new laws on human rights and um and there 20 years later britain is abusing those i mean it's it's appalling
0: isn't it it's really problematic um it is it is it is not a happy story um i i feel very conflicted and sad about it um for for this reason i mean yeah no country's perfect every country's got skeletons every country's done things that perhaps they shouldn't have done but warts and all Britain's record post 1945 on the idea of a rules-based system is pretty good the modern uh, system uh,
1: uh, uh, but, but this is just kicking that into touch throwing it up on you know on its head and just being flagrantly hypocritical just it, it for a bit is. of re- re- real is. politic and, and you it know i is. mean it, it, i'm sure f- you for my, you my response to that is harold wilson in 1965 should have just said no sorry you know it's he, not been should gift. Have
0: just said no this is I, I think you've understood this is not a party political thing it's been cross party it's labor you know Tories, if you want to have an air base put it on yeah, somewhere yeah, that we yeah, do own yeah. you know but and the question now is how to get out of this mess So Mm. I am, like you, a cup-half-full type of person. I try to look at the positives. Mauritius and the United Kingdom actually have excellent relations, except for this issue. Mauritius has said that Diego Garcia will remain an American base with British involvement if they want. And Mauritius has offered a 100-year lease. So that is not an issue, which raises the question...
1: Which sounds quite big of them, if if you ask me.
0: Yeah, well it's
1: it's pretty
0: but also it's you know <laughs> it's a country that's very close to India. Mauritius that's their closest colleague. The Indians, the Mauritians, the British historically are close, and they don't want to lose that excellent relationship, but they want the British to recognize that Mauritius has sovereignty over the area. So the the win-win situation on all of this is Britain accepts that Mauritius has sovereignty. Mauritius grants United Kingdom or the United States or both, a 100-year lease over Diego Garcia, and the military base continues. And Britain and Mauritius work together on the marine protected area around the Chagos Archipelago. It's an extraordinary place. So I have just been. In February, for the first time, I went. It was an extraordinary journey. Mauritius had never been to this part of its own territory. And in the context of a new piece of litigation that's arisen in relation to the Maldives, which is close by, Mauritius said it wanted to make a site visit. The British said they would not object to a site visit. And so 25 of us, marine scientists, lawyers, diplomats, boarded a boat in Seychelles in February. We sailed for six days. (laughs) We did not see another vessel for six days. It was a 1,000 miles by sea. And we eventually arrived... At Chagos. It is pristine and magnificent. We didn't go to Diego Garcia. Beautiful. That what's what's the topography? Dozens and dozens of low-lying atolls covered in extraordinarily verdant you know, forests of palm trees, wow. mangroves, yep. um, uh By trees. I mean just the most beautiful place. And wildlife presumably the goes with it. The water's completely pristine. You're swimming with sharks. You're swimming yeah. in corals. you are I mean, It's absolutely breathtaking. We went back with five Chagostians. I describe the visit in the book. Five Chagostians who were born there, had never been back on their own before, had only been back under British armed <laughs> guard 20 years earlier. And to go back and find their homes, the churches oh, they were baptised in, yep. the hospital, one mm. of them gave birth to their child in, was extraordinary. It's in the middle of nowhere. You're going back to a place that is untouched by human footprint for 50 years. It, it was utterly breathtaking. I, I, I It's the, the most extraordinary journey I've ever taken. And I think... Now the challenge will be, and I think there is now movement, the British government has recognised that its position is untenable. Uh, It it, it is losing authority internationally by maintaining this position. It will have to cut a deal. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has indicated before this latest leadership election that she was willing to make a deal. She was going to make a proposal. She is going to make a proposal, presumably once she's prime minister. I hope that proposal will provide for a sensible uh, way forward uh, along the lines that I've suggested, but we'll just have to see. But the beating heart of the story at the end of the day is an intensely human story. It is the stories that I tell in the book of a lady called Lisby Elise. She was 20 years old newly married when she was forcibly deported in 1973. She has spent 50 years wanting to go back. She's now in her late 60s. She says she will go back as soon as she's allowed to go back to live on her island called uh, Peres Banyas, and I want her to be able to go back. And she asked me at one point what had caused me to write this story and to become as involved as I have been, and I looked at her and I said, you know what? It goes back to a day in 1942, well beyond before I was born, and an image I have in my mind of my two great grandmothers in the summer of 1942 in Vienna, having been forcibly deported from their homes and being allowed to take a single suitcase. Yes, And I said to her, when you told me that you were told from one day to the next, you were leaving the home, the island where you were born, you were being put on a boat and taken to a place you did not know where, and you were allowed one suitcase, it reminded me of my great-grandmother's. And that point of connection, it's of course not a direct parallel. Of course it's not. I mean, Lisbie-Élysée and all the Chagossians were not taken off to be exterminated. They made new lives for themselves. She has a fine home now in Port Louis in Mauritius. But home is home, and she wants to go back. And one of the stories she tells that does evoke a minor degree of parallel, is that the Chagossians are a rather dog-loving community, <laughs> and the British told them they couldn't take their dogs. No. And what happened was...
1: Literally the, dogs, the most egregious thing of all.
0: Well, it is. For, for our wonderful listeners on this podcast, they will understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, the dogs well, up. my
1: dog is some just there, them, beside me, here. Some of them,
0: some of the dogs, as their owners were being taken on board the Nordwehr... Uh, which was the ship that took them off to Mauritius, some of the dogs swam out from the coast towards the boat to be with their owners. Those dogs were shot. The rest of the dogs they tried to kill with strychnine. That did not work. So what did the British do to the dogs, dear listeners, dear podcast listeners?
1: No, I almost don't want to
0: know. What do you think they did with the dogs? I just hate to think. What do you think they did with the dogs, James? They drowned them. They Ate gassed them. them. They gassed them. No! No! Oh. So, um, I mean... Not our finest hour. Gassing dogs is not gassing human beings. Of I want to be so. very clear about this. No, no, no. But... but, it,
1: but it, it, it speaks to a, a, an inner part of our soul and
0: heart, doesn't it? Fifty um, years later, Yeah. if you talk with a Chagossian who lived on those islands, one of the first things they will say to you is what they did to our dogs. And it's... I'm actually not a dog lover. I don't have a dog.
1: I I, I absolutely am, always have been. But this... Um, It's amazing
0: how this fact, this single Mm. fact, has stuck with them. And um, one of the aspects of... um, the last column in the book that I've done is that I've done them with a wonderful illustrator, Martin Rausen, who has done uh, a series of uh, a series of drawings, illustrations, extraordinary illustrations. But one of the illustrations that he's well, done, I'm
1: looking at them here; they're absolutely. Um, yeah, they're if you numbers. look at
0: the one, I don't know which version of the book you've got, but if you look at the I've one, got this one. There. there is one which has the dogs. That's the last one, but the. Okay, this one, if you look at the one after page page 27, page 27, that one, Uh, if you look at the bottom
1: Yes, the chap holding the dogs, there we are. It's all
0: the dogs. Yes. And uh, Martin drew this because this is... There you see... Great caricature
1: of Harold Wilson.
0: Standing above the dogs, Lyndon Johnson there, and um, lots of US Air Force planes... And so on and so forth. So, you know, picture tells a story... I'm a appalled, words I'm appalled. Require. I really... That's, but the that's, dog's issue is, you know, if you talk to Lisby and all her mates and her children, the dog's issue is... Uh, what happened? They went back... How could we have done this? Let me just give you an anecdote, OK? Yeah, do that. Yeah. And, and I, I can send you the photograph, actually.
1: Yeah.
0: They went back a few years ago, the British allowed them what they called a heritage visit, four or five hours on their island. So they went back to Peros Baños, they tidied up the cemetery, they tidied things up a little bit, and then they left and they went to Diego Garcia. And on Diego Garcia, they went and cleared up the cemetery, which had fallen into utter disrepair after 50 years of having been removed. As it would do. As it would be. From the cemetery of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, they then walked back to the boat and they passed another cemetery. And if you look back at that um, image... um, Ah, yes, if you look at the image after page 76, bottom left-hand corner. Yes, Harold, a loyal muff, Left, Pets Cemetery, please respect the graves. Tony, a loyal mutt. Yeah, Jack, Jack, a a loyal loyal mutt. Mutt. Harold. Harold, a loyal mutt. So they're in Diego Garcia. They've left the human cemetery. They come across another fantastic, pristine cemetery, Mm. completely immaculate, completely well-tended. What is it? It's the military dogs for the United States Air Force where the dogs are buried. And that really upset them. And uh, the pho- I, I sent Martin a photograph of the cemetery, and he has he has taken that, but he's replaced the names of the dogs with the names of the politicians who have perpetuated this yes, awful, awful etc. story. Very familiar names, Dominic.
1: Well, I mean, how do you? I mean, I'm just sort of struggling to process this because it's just it's so abominable. It's so appalling. I mean, how has this not? Is it just It hasn't had a bigger stink because people just don't care because it's too far away? It's an island of of, of people about whom we know little, etc., etc. I mean,
0: so let's let's. Have I, a frank. I'm
1: just horrified by this.
0: Let's let's have a frank conversation, James. Yeah, go on. Up. The reality is that we British don't really want to know about the more painful aspects of our past.
1: No, of course we don't.
0: I went back to my school history book. I wanted to know what I'd been told about the end of empire and decolonisation. Yeah. And I, from the attic, I found Jeffrey Treese, This yes, Is Your it. Century. Do you, did yeah, you remember I, that book? I, I, I do. Okay.
1: But I can't remember anything about it.
0: Right. I couldn't remember anything about it. I, I asked myself the question, what was I taught about all of these things? I was taught history when I was 13, 14, so that's 73, 74. I went into This Is Your Century. What did I come across? I mean, it's really actually pretty shocking. I came across one passage which described, there's a chapter called Sunset on Empire. Right. And the, the chapter includes a, a, a commentary on the magnificent last um, British governor, Lord MacBatten magnificent specimen of a man who compares rather favourably to the new fellow who's taken over, a little, skinny, uh, vegetarian pacifist. Listen, I kid you not what it says, who looks a bit like a monkey with glasses. Okay, that's Mahatma Gandhi. That's Of course, yeah. I, I'd, I'd forgotten that. I mean, I could not believe... That was what I was taught when I was 12, 13. I mean, it was really shocking. Okay,
1: so this, this is sort of, this is late 70s, early 80s?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I've never really thought about these yeah. empire issues and colonialism and decolonization. And then you read on to the end of the chapter, and at the end of the chapter it says, you know, all of this decolonization stuff, it's a bit like parent and child. The child, belly aches, makes a fuss, says it wants this and says it wants that. And the parent in the end says, okay, I give up and gives the child what it wants. And then the child grows up and it realises that the parent was right all along. And, you know, it's like that was... Uh, For 40 years, that's what I integrated. So my sense is that the last colony will not do so well in Britain. In particular, it doesn't have the word nuts in the title. There's no swastika on the cover. Books that have those things on sell, my publishers tell me, three times as many copies <laughs> as any other books. I ought to have put a swastika on it. Um, actually, I think it'll do fine. But here's the interesting thing. In France, it's already doing roaringly well. well why? You know, uh, why? 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 Because... Well, it's not about their horrors.
1: It's not perfidious, about Algiers.
0: Perfidious, exactly. It's exactly. Perfidious album. Perfidious album. It's, it's all part, thing uh,
1: is confirming everything that they always knew that the British right, are perfidious, and right. are useless, and they're, you know, they're, they're, right, they're, they're right. they they stitch us up in 1940.
0: And even better than that for the French, it's written by a Brit. Okay? It's yeah. not written by a foreigner. It's no. a Brit telling the yep, real story yep, about them. So. I've been comparing, this is the first book I've written in which the French edition comes out at the same time as the English edition.
1: Yeah, that's amazing.
0: And I've done it for the reason that the Chagossians, Mauritius is a remarkable country. They speak three languages, French, English, and the third is Creole, which is more like French than English. But the Chagossians basically don't speak English. Liz elysee doesn't speak English, but she speaks French. And out of respect for her, I wanted to come out in French. So here's the interesting thing. Every single French newspaper has asked for interviews about this book. Literally, on the left, on the right, Figaro, Nouvel Observateur. I mean, just like up the wazoo.
1: And, and, it, and the Times and the Guardian totally
0: uninterested. Totally uninterested. And uh, what me. I draw, what I draw from this is that, like any country, I don't think it's a British exception. I think, like any country. Home truths are very painful and, and we don't really want to read a whole lot about what we've done to others in the past. Now, I, I may be wrong um, and it, it, it may be that it's different, but my prediction has always been that this book will do better in Scotland, in yes. Ireland,
1: <laughs> yeah, in Northern
0: Ireland and in Wales. But very
1: badly in Whitehall.
0: <laughs> but not so well in Whitehall, and perhaps around different parts of England. That's right. Now I may be totally wrong uh, about that. In in Ireland, it will completely take off. Uh, because it's about the perfidious well, I mean, British.
1: The, the very best of luck with it is all I can say. <laughs> but 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 and, and you know, good for you for, for telling this story, which I am truly appalled about, and which I knew absolutely nothing. Um, I'm ashamed to say. I mean, I think it's very interesting, isn't it? Because you know, during the Second World War, Beveridge Report comes out, um, very end of 1942, issued to all the troops. Um, there's lots of chatting letters and stuff. Um, from 1943 onwards, about the Britain we want when we come home, the, the 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 country we're fighting for, and there is almost no talk of empire, and you know it's all very internalised. You know we want, um, you know what becomes a welfare state. That's what people are interested in: homes fit fit for heroes, etc. Um, etc. Et uh, and it's very interesting that when. You know, there are also lots of, from uh, particularly sort of British troops out in out in Southeast Asia, for example, there's lots of talk about, you know, I don't think we shall have an empire anymore. You know, I think this is, you know, a bit embarrassing. Um, this is not what we're fighting for. Um, there's lots of that kind of stuff. And, you know, well, this, it's, it's one of the reasons why Labour get in and, and the... Conservatives yeah. don't in nineteen forty-five. I mean, it's more—it's more nuanced than that. It's more complicated than that. But this idea that everyone is sort of nostalgia monkeys um, uh, and, and sort of constantly harking back to the good old days is, is, is not true at all. You know, most people in Britain in 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 the forties want a, want a better future. It's the future they're interested in, not, not the past. And, and most people think that the empire seems rather irrelevant.
0: You're absolutely right. One of the stories that's never been fully told. I touched upon it. And I. I you know in due course, we'll, we'll talk about it again. Is I trace in, in the last colony the particular moment when the idea of empire was undone, and it was a meeting that took place in August 1941. You know well about the Atlantic Charter, yes, 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 yes. a single one page document, eight paragraphs. One of the eight paragraphs essentially is the right of self-determination, the right of colonised people to express for themselves their desires as to what they will have in the future. That was inserted by Roosevelt.
1: Yes, he was very, very keen on this and very anti the empire. Absolutely.
0: And he ran rings around Churchill. After the Atlantic Charter was published in August 1941, Churchill returned to Britain on the slow boat back from Newfoundland and made his way to the House of Commons where he gave a speech. You can find it in yep. Hansard. And he is asked about this single sentence on decolonization and self-determination and rights of people to choose their own destinies. And he tells the House of Commons, no, 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 this is, this is only for the victims of Nazism this doesn't apply to Britain, to the United Kingdom. And of course, he was wrong about that. And Labour in forty-five seized on that change that yep. he had signed up to, which then became part of the United Nations. But I went deep into the negotiations between Roosevelt and Churchill. And Roosevelt really did run rings around him.
1: Yeah. This he, was wonderful- completely, he was completely wrong-sided by it, wasn't he? And, well, and, Roosevelt, and, and, was,
0: uh, Roosevelt was brilliant. I mean, Roosevelt, his, his tactics are brilliant. Roosevelt arrives with a draft. Yeah. Decides he's not going to present it formally. Instead, he speaks to the contents of his draft and says to Churchill, look, you go away and do the first draft on the basis of the conversation we've had, knowing that Churchill would then take ownership in the text, which is exactly what happened. And Churchill wrote the first draft and Churchill wrote the revised draft and Roosevelt made some suggestions. Those were introduced, but it was Churchill's text that was adopted. And when Churchill comes back with the piece of paper, he says, I wrote this this is my document, which meant Roosevelt had basically placed upon him ownership of the text. That was completely tactical on the part of Roosevelt.
1: Yeah. Well, he was, uh, I mean, you know, when it came to sort of geopolitics, it was he, he was very hard to touch him, really. I mean, he was the most e- e- extraordinary man. I mean, the fact that he's able to do this, this, clo- I mean, the, the biggest political vault face of, all political vault faces in the summer of 1940 is, is quite extraordinary from having kind of you know been the president that's a champion of isolationism to suddenly going we need to spend you know, 50 billion on 200 billion on on rearming is 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 quite something um and and he does it his his political canniness is and and his ability to kind of Work out how to manipulate other people to his advantage is is just astonishing. Whether it's dealing with chiefs of staff or whether it's dealing with industrialists, it's 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 a masterpiece. I mean, one of the one yeah. of the great things that, that Roosevelt does in May 1940 is he creates this um, this uh, War Production Advisory Board, and he invites all these sort of dollar year and they have no official role whatsoever, which means that. They're just giving advice, which means politically he can distance themselves from him, them and their advice, should it become politically tactical to do so. And there are several members of that that War um, Production Advisory Board who are cut adrift by second half of nineteen forty one, part of nineteen forty two, because they've kind of their sell by date. You know, they, they've they've been very useful, but they've now kind of overextended. He just goes off. You go. Yeah, no, no recourse, I- and and he's and he's completely untouchable. I mean, he's, but the way he harnesses those people is just brilliant because they are absolutely the right people to be advising on how you transform your nation from being a um, um, uh, a, a commercial civilian production hub to a, a military production hub of unprecedented scale uh, and. It's just genius, and and so it is that that from being way 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 behind the ball in May June 1940, by December 1941, eighteen months later, when America finally officially enters the war, production is 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 all booming, and it looks like America's just joined the war, kind of you know fully functioning as the kind of the greatest well, armaments um, production in the, uh, that's ever happened, um, and not at all. It's all been very Deeply calculated, it's been quite a process and lots of political upheaval in the in the way. But 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 Roosevelt comes out with his reputation enhanced as a result of all that. And and, and it's just extraordinary. So I, I mean I have read quite a lot about that. There's a there's a very interesting book by H. V. Morton. Have you ever come across H. V. Morton? No, I haven't. H. V. H. V. Morton H. V. was a was a was a South African born Brit who very famously he's in Palestine in nineteen seventeen and he's he thinks he's dying. Um, and he's in some hospital, and the heat is appalling, and the fan above him is sort of barely r- rotating, and you know his fevered brow, and flies sort of you know nestling, and and he thinks of England, and when he thinks of England, he thinks of sort of you know warm beer and and sort of leveron willow and and you know fields and distant. Barring of sheep and all this kind of stuff, and he thinks how odd that I should think this when you know I'm, I've lived in London most of my life, you know what is this when if I ever get out of this stinking hole and I return to turn to our fair and sceptred isle, I'm going to do a tour of England and find out what England really is like and and so he sets off in this kind of Morris ten or whatever in 1926. And tours around england and just observes what he what he sees and what he witnesses and you know he goes to devonport and they're building destroyers and he goes why are you building destroyers i thought we've won that we've just had the war to, to you know to end all wars and um anyway the in search of england is the book that comes out in 1927 1928 and it is a huge you know thing bill bryson times 10 you know when when notes from a small island first came out Uh, And then he writes all these subsequent books in search of Italy, in search of France, you know, in search of the the Holy Lands and all this kind of stuff. Turns out he wasn't a very nice man and he was slightly anti-Semitic, so he's kind of sort of got this big black mark on him. But he gets recruited by the government to be the journo on the... You know, he's like the celebrity journalist travel writer to observe what happens. And he writes this book called The Atlantic Meeting. And it's full of just the most
0: delicious observations. I have I have come across this. I mean I mean, Ch- uh, I mean I mean Roosevelt also chose remarkable individuals to advise him. Yes he did. He appointed as his attorney general a man called Robert Jackson. That's right. Of course many of our listeners will be very familiar with this is the chief prosecutor at yep. Nuremberg. Jackson in 1941 as part of this whole exercise retains the assistance of who to advise him? on the legalities of all of this, he retains the assistance of Hirsch Lauterpacht, who's uh, visiting the United States and who advises Jackson on lend-lease and neutrality under international law. And, of course, it is Lauterpacht who then invents the concept of crimes against humanity. Incidentally, can I just share with you a very lovely piece of news Uh, on Hirsch Lauterpacht? uh, On the 28th of September... Um, many of your, well, you will be very familiar with the famous that English heritage blue plaques. Yes. Um, but one of the consequences, lovely consequences of East West Street is that on the 28th of September, a blue plaque will be placed on the home in Walm Lane Cricklewood How of wondrous. Hirsch Lauterpacht. That's great. As one of the founders of modern international law and crimes against humanity and uh, human rights lovely family that lives there now had read the book and realised they were living in Lauterpach's home. No. Um, and so we're going to have a little ceremony uh, on the afternoon of the 28th. If you happen to be in London, uh, <laughs> do please come along as my guest and we're going to unveil uh, the blue plaque. So, Well, I, think I, I think I might be have, actually.
1: I mean, Germany you, is, I think, the week before. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But if you're around it, because it'll be, it'll be quite a nice gathering of characters. Um, I've, Dealing with English heritage has been absolutely remarkable. I mean, we spent... Really? Oh, my, it's been wonderful. I mean, oh firstly... I'm,
1: I'm really cheered to hear this.
0: Have you, have, to, have you had to deal with English heritage?
1: Well, only in terms of Stonehenge, and, you know, they seem to be run by a kind of government quango um, yeah. overall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that has been all... You know, the whole Stonehenge tunnel thing has been rather unedifying. But, but you know, I'm delighted to hear that... They've, they've, got, been, they've got
0: this one right. They've, they've got this one blue, right, which is great. Yeah, there'll be a blue plaque going up, and it was very entertaining negotiating the words that have to go um, on 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 the plaque. Um, j- just before, because uh, I'm conscious of time, I should say just a, a hint of what is to come. In yep. part, thanks to you, James, I'm off in a few weeks to Chile, ah, and I will be on the trail. I will be heading to a place called Punta Arenas. Get out yes. your maps, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it is, is the southernmost place in the whole world. Yeah. And that is where Walter Ralph lived in the 1960s and the early 1970s. Yes. And in 1974, and in you mentioned Bill Bryson before, an intrepid British writer traveled down to Punta Arenas. Yes. And wrote a book. I'm going to test you right here. We haven't rehearsed this. No, 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 I'm
1: not going to. Be, I'm not going to provide the answer. I'm afraid you
0: will definitely have read it. Go on, then, Bruce Chatwin. Ah, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, amazing. Bruce Chatwin in Patagonia. Patagonia. Yeah. Okay. Chapter ninety-six is yep. devoted to Walter Ralph.
1: You are, I I, I not, have never never right. twigged that at all. I mean I have read in Patagonia but literally when I was 17 it's and I wasn't remotely remotest bit interested in the Second World War at that point it's so incredible. it would have... No,
0: I read it when it came out exactly in sort of 19 Chapter 96 Chapter 96 of In Patagonia there is well, a German, there is up. a German who lives in Punta Arenas it's astonishing. So what I find so fascinating about that is already in 1974, yeah. a British travel writer, a wonderful British travel yeah, writer yeah. heads down there and obviously people are talking about Walter Ralph. Now, yeah. I uh, I got fascinated by this. And you know me like you I leave no stone unturned. I have actually thanks to you uh, in part, now met the grandson of Walter. Oh Robert.
1: well, that was going to be my next question. He was yes, delightful?
0: Absolutely delightful, and I'm inviting him to travel with me down to Punta Arenas.
1: Great. I've well, you'll a have heart. great time. He's a really, really nice guy. Um,
0: he is. He's, he's, he's very he's,
1: confused he's, by this legacy because he just remembers his grandfather as a well. You know this. I mean, as a as a as a sort of slightly patrician, but but. Not yeah. unpleasant grandfather.
0: Yeah. yeah, a guy who, you know, manufactured king, cans of king crabs and came home, you know, on the weekends. Just anyway, he's asked me actually if I'd accompany him to Berlin, um, which I have said I would do. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: well, send if, him my best. He, he may not remember me at all, but, but, but do, do send him my best all the same.
0: Well, I've got my cast of characters. I, just last week I received an email out of the blue from a fellow called von Ribbentrop, <laughs> um, um, who's the grandson uh, of the von Ribbentrop. And we've started up a whole communication. And, uh, and is Rudy
1: Hyman still alive? Have you, have you managed to track Rudy him?
0: Hyman is still alive, and I met him last <sighs> November. Um, and isn't he great? An extraordinary character. Because he was asked At, to spy on him, wasn't he? Absolutely.
1: As an architect, as this German At, Jew who, who quits Germany and becomes a translator for the British army. Yes. And the most amazing thing about Rudy Hyman is that he's in Tunisia exactly the same time As that Walter Ralph. Ralph is in Tunisia, yeah. kind of, yeah. you know... Yeah. No, Rudy, in in, in Rudy, early part Rudy of 1943.
0: Hyman, Rudy Hyman was pretty remarkable. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm on and the is he still,
1: of, And he's still completely compass mentors. Completely compass And Because and, and, he must be 100 if he's a day now. Oh, 120 or something. No, I no, mean... No, no, but I mean, when I met him, he still... I mean, he looked about... 75, and this was about seven years ago, I suppose, six, yeah. seven years ago. And, you know, he had, had a sort of smart shirt sort of rolled up halfway yeah. up his yeah. sleeves. You know, yeah. very cultured man. I mean, his house was just magnificent. He was this incredibly well-known architect and still sort of working. I mean, yeah, here's,
0: another, here's another little fact about Rudy Hyman. So life is never black and white. It's a little complicated. Hmm. It turned out in conversation. That Rudy Hyman was rather partial to Senator Pinochet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. For whom? Who who
1: who rang you out of the blue and asked you to represent him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, nah, so, so only, there's so, two degrees of separation, so, not six. So
0: these things are always yeah, no, no. rather complex.
1: No, um, of course they are. Things are never are.
0: quite what well they seem. Anyway, what I was going to say was having. Been reminded by someone else about Bruce Chatwin writing about Walter Ralph in chapter ninety six of In Patagonia. I got in touch um, with uh, my good friend Richard Overend, who is the director of the Bodleian Library. Right. Which is where. He's a friend to have. Good, wonderful person. You must. Oh, what a wonderful person. Well, I don't so, know him at all, but. He's written a great book about archives and libraries and uh, which i had reviewed very very positively it was a wonderful book the chatwin archive is held at oxford and um, with assistance from nicholas shakespeare who's written a great biography yeah, yeah, of
1: yeah, yeah, Bruce yeah, Chatwin. Yeah, yeah. i know nicholas uh,
0: i am going up to spend the afternoon of the 30th of september at the bodleian going through chatwin's notebooks to try and find out what was it about Chatwin's trip to Patagonia that caused him to come across Walter Ralph and express interest in Walter Ralph? Um, I don't know where it will lead to, but as you know from your own work, once you open a door, you're led into a place. There are then three more doors, and you've got to open each of them and keep. My,
1: going. my absolutely, you have. I mean, my 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 guess would be. Walter Ralph made himself quite well known that everyone knew about him and as soon as he got down there everyone said well he's the big one around here you must talk to this guy you know he's here." and he was, he was a former Nazi
0: well you know uh, I bet was, it was
1: something like that
0: you know what was a hundred a hundred miles away from Punta Arenas
1: yes of course was the uh, was a sort of the weird colony wasn't it
0: Dawson Dawson yeah. no we're not not Colonia Dignitat that's ah
1: different. that's what I think of
0: Dawson Island. Have you heard about Dawson Island? Yes. It's absolutely bonkers. Dawson Island, where they constructed a Nazi-style concentration camp. That's right. And the rumour is that it was designed with assistance by Walter Ralph. Now, I have not been able to find any yeah. evidence to support that. That's part of the trip down to Punta Arenas. Yep. Is I bet to it's meet- true, though. Well, you say that it is but it's true but you're a historian and you know that if you and I put in our books. No, you can't
1: say it. You can't say it unless you know it. But but right. but, but but my so my my what? hunch would be.
0: So this is so this is the evidence thus far is a group of ministers who were in Allende's government were imprisoned at Dawson's Island. They were doing hard labor. One day they go out and they meet a group of electricians and the electricians say to them, this is now summer of 74, exactly when when Chapman is there, by coincidence, and the electricians say to them, yeah, 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 there's this foreign guy, this German guy who's been helping on design. They don't (laughs) mention a name, but we've now tracked down two of those electricians. Amazing in Punta Arenas. How brilliant! And that's How where I'm brilliant. heading off to. That's where I'm. Heading wow, off
1: that's to. very very exciting. I, I mean, I do. One of the things I remember when I was researching Walter Ralph was finding this letter that he'd written to a former, you know, former colleague, um, SS colleague, and says, you know, Chile's not too bad, but you know, you know, it needs licking to shape. But 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 you know, give me one good SS division, and I'll soon sort this place out. You know, I think that's 1963 or 64 yes. or something that yes. that's written is yes. something like yes. that. I mean, I'm, yes. I'm just talking from memory.
0: Yes. No, no, you're right, but but he but, but, it, but
1: it, it, you know you read that and you just ah uh, you know just sort of makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, doesn't it? Because there he is, and there's his fucking funeral with people doing whole Hitler's over it in 19 was it 82, 84, something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. 84, ah. yeah, 84. No, it's I have visited uh, well, his
0: grave. Yes, I found that. I went there also.
1: Beautiful, beautiful cemetery. I mean, absolutely stunning. Sort of yeah, Bougainvillea all a, over the place. It's and, an you know. astonishing cemetery. Now, anyway, we've been talking yes. far too long, but, but, but uh, we've Philip, had a great conversation
0: up. as always. I will promise to keep you posted. Um, Please do. And we'll have more to talk when we take that in the footsteps of uh, of Otto Wächter walk across the wow. door. Oh, so I can share another piece of news on that. Uh, go on. There's then. a very fine um German company which has had a role in making such um films as The Lives of Others and Downfall yes. um have bought uh the rat line to turn into a six part series. Why
1: wouldn't you make that into a six part series? Right. I mean right. And presumably so Volker Brook will be um
0: I don't know, but we well, have we, an interesting question. But one of the things that's very interesting, and I share this with you and your listeners first,
1: yeah, well, thank
0: is you. that we have agreed that a very young John le Carré will be making an appearance as a young British soldier in 1949 engaged yeah. in the interrogation of... German prisoners. Amazing.
1: Well, well that's, that's terrifically exciting. I, I'm. I well, I, I will be the first to be watching that series. I can absolutely promise you. You
0: might have a walk on role. We can find a walk on role for you. Well,
1: well, I'd sort of echo um, echo um, von Vector and and sort of shout in a scene in Rome.
0: What would you want your walk on role to be? I don't know. <laughs> Just. A, so, uh,
1: I, I, I don't know. A, um, a, a doctor in the in the in the. Um, in the hospital, where he's come on with maybe, my, maybe my clipboard, nurse. and all Maybe a nurse, James. <laughs> a you don't want to get nurse. above your station <laughs> in life. <A> male <laughs> nurse,
0: <laughs> a even, swir- not a fellow even, swimmer in the time. No, one swimmer. of the porters <laughs> carrying
1: that's it. The, that's it. Be the fine.
0: stretcher that takes yeah, no, no, him out be great. of his final. Uh, residents. Yeah, no, that would be good with his you've face got, blotched the, and distorted. You've and got the part, James. Distorted. <laughs> you've got the part, and I think we can <laughs> even find a line for you. Ooh, this is very heavy.
1: Well, now that I've been doing Duolingo Italian for on my 583rd day streak, I mean, obviously I can just do it in Fluid Italian, so it'll be fine.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I wish. Um, <laughs> well, have fun with all these um, all these journeys and trips and stuff, and um, do, do keep me posted. And um, Philippe, as always, a joy to see you and to talk to you and um really good luck with the new book which is the last colony a tale of race exile and justice from chagos to the hague um which is literally out now isn't it it's out
0: today out? out today it is the yeah. day is it oh well congratulations, congratulations
1: congratulations um and i'm very very sorry that i can't come to your book party um uh, week after next but um thank you very much for the invite and I think Al and Tony are planning to come, so.
0: Good. I'll see you. Have very a lovely very evening. Soon. Brilliant. All right. Bye. All the best to you. Yeah. Bye.